Good morning, Lansing. It's Saturday, it's 9 a.m., and the pet experts are in the building. This is the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Now, here are your hosts, Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen. Welcome, pet keepers, to this week's MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. I'm your host, Lee Cohen, here with my co-host, the pet expert himself, Mr. Rick Bruce. Good morning, Rick. Hey, Lee. Uh, I hope you don't mind, but this uh, today's uh, uh, talk is going to be all about fish, so we're not going to be talking back and forth here. It's... It's pointless, frivolous conversation compared to what we have coming up. So, well, Rick, so let's just jump right in, okay? Well, Rick, if you want to bring in an expert who actually knows what they're talking about instead of me, someone who can barely keep a beta alive, yeah. Yeah. then I understand. I mean, the, let, let's at least uh, keep our audience informed right. and entertained. So uh, let's jump into our guest. We've got with us this week Jason Collant, the associate. Associate Professor of Integrative Biology at Michigan State University. And he is a returning guest, so welcome back to the studio, Jason. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Rick. You bet. Hey, Jason, um, for the people that are listening out in the audience, you've been kind of helping out over there at MSU uh, for how many years now? Uh, no, geez, that's a good question. I, I started in 2013, so uh, what is it, 2022 now? Yeah, so, nine uh, years. We're starting, starting with the ninth year, yeah. And you've made... Uh, amazing changes to the the thought of you know how we think of fish I, I at least for me personally and then I think the university has turned a few heads because you've been really uncovering some pretty interesting stuff would you mind just sharing with the audience what you do what you've done where you're going with this sure yeah that's a great question to start uh, start us off with um, so MSU, when I arrived back in 2013, uh, you know, we, we had a number of folks that have, have worked on fish uh, at the university over the years. But, uh, you know, our university has also had a long and proud tradition of building model systems for understanding biology where there wasn't a model system before. I'm talking about people like uh, Rich Lenski, for instance, one of the most famous evolutionary biologists living right now who uh, started the long-term evolution experiment right right at MSU uh, studying uh, E. coli, of all things, and mm. has, has actually, uh, you know, his nickname is the man who bottled evolution. Right. Huh. Uh, so he, he's he's uncovered, you know, and, and actually observed the evolutionary process in in his laboratory over many, many generations mm-hmm. of bacteria. So this is sort of the background of MSU. Um, and and, and the, the big question and one of the things that really draws me here and makes me love MSU is that we've been able to build a crowd of people around aquatic organisms to study really profound things about evolution. So now, you know, we've got quite a gang. We've got, you know, Heather Easton, who's studying, uh, you know, axolotls and and newts, uh, working on some really fascinating uh, uh, co-evolutionary interactions between bacteria uh, that produce uh, tetrodotoxin, one of the most poisonous compounds. And, and the newts uh, that, that they, they grow on their skin, uh, essentially protecting them. Hmm. You know, this is enough toxin to kill, you know, 12 adult people from a single newt kind of thing. Then you've got folks like Ingo Brosh, who are studying gar, a real famous uh, sport fish here in Michigan, the long-nosed gar, um, uh, using them as, as a as a model system for really understanding the evolution of genomes, uh, uh, trying to, to help us understand how um, vertebrate genomes have evolved. Uh, from from our, our fishy ancestors, hmm. uh, Yulia Gantz, uh, who's another researcher that's using zebrafish to study the guts 
of of of, of the nervous system gut. You know, how how does the um, how, how does the enteric nervous system, that's what we call the, the gut in, inside mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. Uh, the nervous system inside the gut, how does that function? What are the rules that, that, that um, make that nervous system work and how does it develop? Uh, our, our newest member of the gang, Elizabeth Heath Heckman, is, is working on uh, bobtail squid, uh, which have a symbiotic relationship uh, with um, uh, uh, glowing bacteria. Essentially, mm-hmm. they, they, they produce their own light. And mm-hmm. then you've got uh, little old me. I study electric fish. Uh, they're yeah. fishes that make electric to communicate and navigate their environments. Now, what, what, I guess, in a greater sense, is from a research perspective and a studies perspective, is there anything special about studying aquatic animals? Well, you know, I think uh, particularly when it gets to fish, I mean, you're talking about one of the most abundant vertebrates on the planet Earth, and they've, they've been here for a very long time. They're a very successful group of, of animals as mm-hmm. far as animals are concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you were to draw a pie chart, about two-thirds of all living vertebrates would be fish. Right. Um, so they're just a big group, and so I, I like to joke that they've – in, throughout their evolutionary history, have explored a lot of uh, parameter space. You know, they, mm-hmm. they've if if something weird has happened in biology, fish have probably tried it at one point in evolution, <laughs> right? So and so then, you you personally, what what attracted you to electrical uh, electric producing fish? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So uh, when I was a, a student back at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, it was a small liberal arts school. And uh, I, I uh, took an animal communication class the first semester I was there. And it was taught by a really great professor that knew tons of things about how animals communicated. But he personally studied electric fish. And uh, I guess I did well enough on the first exam that he kind of pulled me aside and said, you'd probably be pretty good at research. And, and the rest is history. <laughs> I basically started working on them when I was 18 years old and, and, and really wow. haven't stopped. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And then um, if I remember the story, your, your wife came to MSU. She got a job here at MSU. Yep. And then you kind of came on her tails. Yep. Fair enough, right? Yep. yep. It's Somehow or another, universities try to do that. They try to... You know, if if you have qualifications and capacities that the university is willing to take a look at, they did. Yep. And then they brought you along. Yep. And not in a small way. They had to set up facility for you. Yeah. No, it was, you know, one of the, one of the things about, uh, you know, places like Michigan State uh, is that they, they have to compete with the with the two coasts. Right. Yeah. And and so they've, they've got to attract people people to the area. And one thing that MSU has been really smart about is, has been um, spousal accommodations because yeah. they realize that the two-body problem is a big problem in, in academia. Um, oftentimes, professors are married and they don't want to commute long distances to you know pursue their professional passions and these sorts of things. So MSU has a really progressive policy in terms of that. And I, w- I was a spousal accommodation for, for my wife. That's and, right. And, and sometimes... We stumble into success as a university and, you know, as an opportunity for you. Let's talk a little bit about for the last, you said you came here in uh, uh, 2013. From 2013 to now, 2022, what's happened in your lab? What's happened that you've kind of been able to explore? What's happened that you may have discovered? What's happened that uh, would be exciting news? Yeah, well, you know, we've... When we opened the lab in 2013, I, I really saw a, a niche for us, you know, to use the ecological term. Um, you know, electric fish have been studied for decades, uh, but they've been primarily a model for neuroscience. And along the way, we've picked up little tidbits about how they've evolved uh, you know, uh, they have interesting brains or they have this feature, that feature, but it's sort of been background information for a long time. And so 
in studying them and throughout my PhD, I started to realize that they were a really powerful model for evolution because of the fact that uh, different groups of fishes that have independently evolved have evolved this ability to produce and perceive electricity. So this is like a, a, an experimenter's dream because you have a, a re repeatable experiment. Uh, you know, in, in the history of vertebrates, things like teeth, feathers, mammary glands, you know, all, all the exciting vertebrate traits that we have have evolved once and a very long time ago. You'd be hard-pressed to find a trait that repeatedly evolves again and again in vertebrates, but electric organs have evolved actually six times, which gives us the opportunity to potentially see what the rules are for evolving a complicated structure like an electric organ, these sorts of things. So we saw a lot of value there. Yeah, so uh, just to clarify or maybe re drive home to the audience, the reality is is that since the time fish came about, there have been like fish that have developed electric organs and then that just completely disappeared from essentially the place, the, the, the face of the earth as best we know, and then showed back up again maybe in the same fish or in a different kind of fish? Well, yeah, so the, the, that's partly true. So um, if, you, if you rewind the, the, the sort of the tape of life back to the, the, the dawn of, of our group, the vertebrates, um, they're actually ancestrally electroreceptive, meaning that they can they can perceive uh, electricity uh, in their environments. Uh, and that, that's something that would be very adaptive in water. But when we get to teleost fish, the modern fishes, most fishes that you think of fishes, most of the fish that yeah. are in your shop, right? right. Teleost right. fishes, they've actually lost that ability. Okay. And, and then different groups like relatives of catfish and, and the elephant fish that I study from Africa have regained the ability to perceive electricity. But in, in those cases, they've actually also gained the ability to produce it as well. And that's something that's very novel. That's only happened six times in the history of, of vertebrates. So ancestrally, nobody could produce that electricity. But these six groups have, a, have an additional superpower. Well, I find that pretty interesting. Yeah. We want to let, tell you more about elephant fish. And uh, Lee, let's take us to the next. Well, we're going to talk more. We're speaking with Jason Gallant, who is an assistant professor with Michigan State University. And we'll be back right after the break on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we're talking this morning with Jason Gallant, who is an associate professor professor with Michigan State in the area of integrative biology. And Jason, in the last segment, we were talking about electric fish. Now, forgive my ignorance, Rick has been doing it for years. But bottom line is, for most people, when you think of electric fish, electric eels might pop up on there. But most people aren't really sure what are electric fish? So briefly, what kind of breeds of fish or types of fish would you say are electric fish? Yeah, great question. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Electric eels are uh, uh, probably the most well-known uh, of all of the electric fishes. Um, they are uh, in a group that are actually relatives of catfish. Uh, the scientific name for the group is called gymnotiforms or knife fishes. Uh, there are about 200 species that are all uh, endemic to South America. So this includes many fishes that are relatives that are actually what we call weakly electric, meaning that if you were to stick your hand in the tank, 
You wouldn't feel anything. You would need an amplifier to detect whether or not they were electric. Then there's another big group from Africa. They're, they're commonly known as elephant fishes, which is equally large, about 200 species that are endemic to, to Western Africa, primarily in, in West Central Africa. Um, and then there's a handful of other fishes that also can produce electricity. Um, so there, you have actually a species of catfish that makes electricity, the electric catfish, Malapterurus. And um, you also have uh, uh, torpedo rays, uh, which you can find right off the uh, Pacific coast, actually. Uh, again, very strongly electric fish. Um, and then uh, we have the little skate, which is a, a, a native to the east, eastern seaboard. Uh, they produce a weak amount of electricity for communication. And then finally, you have this really obscure fish that is another another uh, one that you can find in North America from about New Jersey to Texas called the stargazer. And this is a nasty little fish that buries in the sediment and uh, actually produces electricity using modified eye muscles. Um, and and, and uh, they, uh, they have these big trapdoor mouths that can actually shock their food and falls right into their mouths. Oh, my gosh. It seems like there tends to be two main functions that this uh, sending an electric shock by way of uh, uh, in the water from a fish that play a part. Maybe there's other roles and responsibilities associated with it. But it seems as if natural defense, maybe prey and collection of animal, and then also communication as far as spatial understanding of what everything is. Like if, if you're in complete black darkness as a fish or in very dark waters, it would be helpful if you could use that similar to what a bat would use with echo uh, sonar. Sonar, you know, best yep. I know from yep. what I've learned over the years with the uh, black ghost knife fish in South America or all these from Africa uh, is that they can somehow find either direction or is it main or is direction one of them that they can do like where they're at and then is other ones ways of communicating so they understand back and forth can you help explain that yeah absolutely i mean your your analogy with bats is actually perfect um we you know we know that bats echolocate and we say with the electric fish that they're capable of electrolocating uh, the, the benefit of using electricity is, of course, uh, electrons travel at the speed of light, whereas sound only travels at the speed of sound. So it's actually an instantaneous map of their environment, right? Um, so you're, you're correct. And, and they, they use that electrical image that they form of their environment in a very sophisticated way to, to, to sort of see uh, with uh, a sensory array that's actually on their skin. They look kind of like I did on prom night with a bunch of little warts uh, uh, all over their bodies, you know, kind of acne-like. Uh, and then finally, you've got um, uh, the ability to communicate, which, again, bats do as well. So a bat will make a chirp, right? And, and that is a, a, a piece of sound information that will interact with the environment, including other bats' ears. And similarly, electric fishes are making pulses of electricity that interact with the environment, including other electric fish. Yeah. And so they, they have this sort of uh, uh, kind of a sophisticated language, if you will, uh, that they can exchange information. Um, so the, the pulse of electricity that they make tells the receiver a lot about the identity of the fish, what species they are, what sex they are, what the reproductive status is, these sorts of things. But then the sequence of those pulses, similar to how a bird would sing, tells a lot about things that are changing over the short term, like this is a, a, an aggressive signal or this is a, a, a sexual signal or, or this is a territorial signal, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember previous conversations I've had with you, um, the fact it's, it's sometimes hard to record and 
analyze conversation among animals, right? Yes. But there's something special about electric fish when you're dealing with communication because it's easily mapped out and recorded because you can pick up those electrical uh, fields. I'm thinking of almost like uh, uh, when you're in the hospital and you're looking at all the monitors yep. and you can see all the graphing of what's up. You know, you might be feeling pain, you might not be feeling pain, but the the, the, the graphs out front don't lie. Yep. Talk a little bit about communication with respect to the fish you study and how that can actually give you some information about where how they've evolved over time. Yeah, so um, so one one of the things that my lab is focused really uh, strongly on is the is the fact that these fishes uh, produce these pulses of electricity that really have species information in them. So when they emit a pulse of electricity, we can actually uh, record that. Uh, and we, we spent time in Gabon in 2019 doing just that. We were there for about six weeks. And um, that information is almost like a, a species fingerprint. Yeah. And uh, we've been really interested in that interaction because we think that the electric fishes are, are, are hearing these pulses and deciding that this is the species I want to mate with, this is the species that I am a competitor of, these sorts of things. So the evolution of those signals is probably very important in, in maintaining or possibly creating new species. And so our big question in the lab when, when I opened it, uh, at least, was what are, what are the sort of genetic mechanisms that are leading to the evolution of these novel signals? And it turns out that the, the, the genetic mechanisms are the same mechanisms that make our nervous systems function, uh, namely ion channel proteins. Uh, but more recently, we've also started to look at uh, things that affect the shape of the cells, which are called electrocytes, that actually make that electricity as well. So... Um, Essentially, you've got this interaction where you've got evolution of genes that are influencing the um, the type of electricity, which lead to different signals, which creates isolation between populations, which leads to new species. So you've got this really cool interplay between gene evolution and speciation, mm -hmm. but in genes that are of biomedical relevance. And that's that's really kind of a, a cool holy trinity there. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. Now, if, if I'm understanding you, is it more like a hearing that the fish are detecting or is it more the visual side of it? Because when people think of electricity, they think of it more visually, whereas it, it sounds to me like it's more of a sound-driven thing that they're picking up or in the water. of some kind. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to, you know, know the mind of an electric fish, right? Um, so, I, I, you know, the only thing I can do is try to put it in evolutionary terms. So the organ that actually perceives the electricity has uh, cells that are, are, are homologous to cells in our own bodies, and they are our ears. The hair cells inside of our ears detect deflections of the, uh, of the cochlear membrane, right? So sound hits our tympanic membrane, makes those little bones wiggle, which ultimately wiggles the cochlea. The cochlea then has, has a membrane inside of it that is deflecting sensory hairs called hair cells. It turns out those same cells are used in the, per in the perception of um, uh, motion in fishes in the lateral line sense and the electric sense. So in a lot of ways, it could be considered somewhat like hearing something like touch, but not, not quite like vision. 
Interesting. It makes me also wonder, though, at that at some point, are there hearing aids or things like that that could be used? Because candidly, I'm dealing with exactly that problem right now with my own hearing. And the solution has been to try and use hearing aids to drive more signal into my head to make up for that fact. Is that the future? Are we going to have fish floating around with something like that so they can communicate more? Yeah, well, you know, one of the big areas that we're so completely ignorant of is 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 how hair cells can be repaired right that as far as we know once you lose your hair cells they're they're just gone uh, but if we understood how these these organs developed perhaps we'd get some hints at, at to, to fixing hair cells but I, I don't know if we'll ever get electroreceptors well we'll see we're speaking this morning with Jason Galan and Jason we need to take another break but when we come back we'll continue the conversation about electric fish here on 1320 WILS. Welcome back to the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. Here are your hosts, Rick Bruce and Lee Cohen. It's 935 and we're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we've been talking this morning with Jason Gallant, who is an associate professor for MSU in the area of integrative biology. And Jason, that, that just your title and your department makes people wonder, what the heck kind of things do they do with this knowledge and do they study? So why don't you help our listeners understand exactly what kinds of things this leads to? Because I know you study electric fish, but now you're starting to get into a lot of other areas of investigation. So why don't you share some of those? Yeah, um, integrative biology is actually a relatively new name. Uh, the department actually uh, changed its name right around the time I got there. We, for decades, were, were the Department of Zoology. And um, so I suppose there's a pretty strong animal bent there, but we felt that integrative biology described what we do better because we like to study life in context. That's our motto. Right. And, and so, you know, being in that department has really challenged me to think about the not just the, the, the parts of the organism, but also the environments that they're in and sort of the interaction between organisms and these sorts of things, what we really refer to as integrative biology, sort of a more holistic approach. So one of the things that we've uh, been getting into more recently is, is trying to understand a little bit more about the mating behaviors of, of these fishes, which is a pretty acetyric topic, but actually something that I've always been really curious in. I mean, you know, uh, as any, any good fish keeper knows, yeah, right. right, you know, breeding is like the third rail, right? right you know, when you right. get really good, you breed them. Yes. And um, so as part of our work, we've been trying to do gene editing in, in these fish using CRISPR uh, technologies to do gene editing. And uh, we, we had a fantastic time doing it in knife fishes, but it, it didn't work in, in elephant fishes, which was a bummer because elephant fishes, as, as y- y'all know, uh, is, are, are really my, my passion. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're my favorite. Well, if you go into your lab, yep. you see lots of different types of elephant fish. Yeah, right? we have about 16 species in the lab and, right and, now. And, you know, tank after tank and tank after that is, and that's just the chosen animal that you've gone after. Yep. One, because of the diversity, right? Yep. Um, and two, just because they're very, very fascinating. But you're saying that, uh, where has that fallen short? 
Well, so, you know, in our efforts to try to do gene editing, really what you have to do is you have to be able to breed the fish to get embryos at the single cell stage. So just moments after fertilization, you basically insert a needle into that cell and you squirt your compounds in there and that will change the DNA somehow, which in theory is great and works like gangbusters and zebrafish and knife fishes. We've done some really fantastic things that I can tell you about later. But the Mormyrids, for whatever reason, we weren't getting fertilized embryos. Mm -hmm. So I started scratching my head one day and thinking about this and went back to the literature and uh, came across a series of papers by a French guy, uh, Xavier Matei, uh, that uh, basically described that myrids are really unusual among all vertebrates in that they have no flagella on their sperm. Which means basically for those, if they want to know, they don't move. They don't have swimmers. They don't swimmers. <laughs> they don't go. Not That's not the typical thing that you saw in... Uh, in sixth grade, well, that, that, fourth grade or whatever, that's the right. video of the sperm just kind of working his way up the chana channel, right? Yeah, that's right. And this one doesn't. It's just that's the, right. Well, you know, one of my earliest memories of, 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 of sex ed, so to speak, is, is uh, seeing the beginning of that movie, Look Who's Talking. You remember that scene where all the sperm are sort of teasing yeah. each other and yeah. swim, swimming up the fallopian yeah. tubes yeah. and they're yeah. like racing, basically. Right. Yeah. And I mean, Who, who's going to score the goal? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and this exactly. is sort of like, you know, th this is what I think is so cool about this project because these fishes are sort of challenging that, that deeply held notion that we have that like, you know, th there's this race to the ova, right? Yeah. That, that's happening yeah. In, in, yeah. in all animals and that's as natural at, at the cellular level as it can be. Well, this, this got me thinking about a lots, lots of things that I've been doing a lot of reading. And, and as biology tells us again and again, of course, uh, there is no one normal way of doing anything. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, aflagellate sperm, as we call it, so sperm that, that have no tails, um, have actually evolved 36 times in animals. Hmm. Uh, but only one time in vertebrates, and that's the fishes that I study. Uh, most of the times it occurs, it's, it's in invertebrates like uh, marine organisms of various types and certain types of insects like um, uh, millipedes, I believe, are, are one example of that. Hmm. But nobody really knows why. Uh, one of the, the leading hypotheses that we have is that uh, uh, sperm competition is very low. So there's this situation that you have among animals where uh, you, you have a situation called sperm competition where the number of females present is, is limited and the number of males far, far exceeds them. So the males are now competing with each other for access to those, that limited supply of ova. So there is intense pressure on those males to get faster swimmers or produce more sperm to, mm -hmm. to flood the system. So I win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and of course, evolution favors the one that's most, most likely to make the eggs. Yeah. Uh, uh, fertilize the eggs. Uh, in, in, in some groups, um, males are less competitive. They have smaller testes for their body, body size. And in myrids, that really does seem to be the case. They have incredibly small testes. So why? Well, it turns out that being a myrid is really expensive in terms of energy. Now, you have to remember, they're producing electricity 24-7, and they have one of the largest brains for any vertebrate. So if we were to take a more myriad electric fish and make it the size of a, of a human like myself, its brain would actually be bigger than mine. Hmm. And that's because of the expansion of their cerebellum, which is an incredibly energetically costly piece of hardware that runs their electrosensory system. Okay. So what we think is going on here is that the male fishes in, the, in, in this species, and of course this is all 
theor- theoretical at this okay. point. Okay. We think that the males are so limited by these energetic costs that they're trying to shave whatever they can off their energy budget, including uh-huh. the tails off their sperm. This is like huh. swimmers shaving their legs to swim just a yeah, little yeah. bit faster. Yeah, just, to, just <laughs> to take an extra edge. Yeah. And is there, you know, by having a bigger cerebellum, uh, more capacity for electricity production and, well, and absorption, well, is that analysis. in and of itself going to help in his ability to survive through the next generation? Well, it's really the, the analysis of that electrical information that's coming into their brain. Okay. So their incredible ability to, to you know, understand, see their environments essentially comes at a great energetic cost for them, essentially. Yeah. And, and so they need to get rid of extra, you know, the peripherals uh, as, as possible, you know, kind of, I'm thinking of this plane and they're, and they're worried about it crashing if they don't get the stuff off the plane, yep. right? And for Jettison. some reason, this guy's you know giving part of its junk away, yep. right? Just yep. in order to make things happen. Any anything but extra? What's, what's the advantage? What this plane that's moving forward? What's his ultimate goal by having throwing the extra stuff off and having more energy put into that brain? You know, that's the question, right? That, that, that is really does that the, make because it would only make sense with your conversation that yep. you know the species wins out in the long run usually because it got its sperm in there. That's right. But maybe the species wins out longer because of the difficulties of the environment and his ability to like really better perform intellectually and or electrically? Maybe. Um, so th- there's a couple of different answers to that. And, and so I'll just comment on what we have information on at this point. So one of the things uh, that could potentially facilitate that and often ignored in biology is the female's role in all of this, right? <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, there, there are textbooks filled with examples of how women have been ignored systematically Fair in enough. science, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, wouldn't you know it, my graduate student and I uh, uh, joke about this, but no one has ever bothered to look at the eggs of these fish in any systematic way. So uh, last November, we threw some under our scanning electron microscope. And sure enough, when you zoom in, zoom in and enhance, just like on Minority Report there, coated all over the eggs are thousands of tiny little hairs. We think what's going on is potentially the females are doing the work of the males. Mm. Again, maybe not surprising to some of our listeners at home. But what we think might be happening is that these little hair-like projections are sweeping the sperm to where they need to go. Uh-huh. Okay? Uh-huh. They have the mechanism of delivery, uh, you know, like, hey, come on in, like, in a vacuum, kind of like suck exactly. in. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the same types of structures actually exist in, in, in female uh, mammals, including humans, right? The, the fallopian tubes are covered in cilia that sweep the egg ultimately mm-hmm. to the uterus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's a kind of a conveyor belt system. So it's not so difficult to imagine that something similar could be going on there. Mm-hmm. So it may be that males are incredibly energetically limited and females have already solved the problem for them. Right. And right. so... At that point, there's really no cost losing the flagella. Interesting. So, again, this is all very new research right now, and, I, and uh, but it's really exciting stuff. I'd like to. We gotta, I want to continue this conversation a little bit in that, okay, that's all fine and good, but what's the implications for that? So what, what's the, what's the take-home, takeaway message in studying this? So yeah. 
Let's do that. Well, there's a, there's a lot to go over with our guest this morning, Jason Galad from MSU. You've already got me, Jason, because now I know Revenge of the Nerds wasn't telling the truth because it was the athletes versus the smart guys. And you're saying that the, sometimes the smart guys can get the girls. So it's a fascinating conversation. And we'll continue right here on 1320 WILS. Finally. Two hosts your pets can relate to. It's Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen on the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. We're back here with the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show, and we've been speaking this morning with Jason Gallant, who is an associate professor with MSU. And Rick, why don't you start us up with a question this segment? Well... So we had some fascinating conversation. I hope that you who are just tuning in had a chance to listen to it. If not, go back on uh, Monday. You can always get our our show a, kind of on the, on the podcast and listen to this show because it might be a little meaty and you might have missed some stuff or maybe you're just tuning in. But, Jason, you, you, you just talked about um, how fascinating the sexual world of the uh, the elephant fish, if you will, from Africa is, and the things you're trying to kind of understand and explore. Why? Why does the sperm not have a flagella? Why? Why are? How helpful is it that the egg is different and that it has lots of uh, what cilia-like uh, apparatuses around it that kind of help help it serve? Well, so we study that. What's gained? What's gained? That's a great question and, and something I, I do think that professors sometimes have a hard time conveying uh, when they get excited about all these really weird yeah. things that they find, yeah, right? You right? Justify the learning. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, well, let's, let's break it down here. I mean, I think that there are diff- different levels of what this teaches us. So I'll, I'll start with sort of more of the social implications and then get to the science, which is unusual for me. But I, I am really right. feeling quite passionate about this idea. So, you know, as, as we were joking in the, in the last segment, about look who's talking and, and, and all that sort of stuff. I think there's something profound in, in, in exceptions to um, beliefs that we have about sexual roles, uh, you know, between men and women uh, uh, and, and, and more broadly in biology. Uh, you know, when we see an instance, for instance, of an animal uh, that uh, exhibits homosexual behavior, for instance, right, um, th- there are numerous documented cases of that, right? But yet we teach our kids uh, from an early age that biology is sort of this, you know, it's in our DNA that men behave this way, women behave that way, or that, you know, homosexuality may be uh, unnatural or something like that. So I I think that there's a social value in understanding the just the sheer diversity of how Mm -hmm. animals reproduce and how there is really no one true way in nature, that there are many different ways in nature. And Mm -hmm. we're sort of an amalgam of all these things. Uh, so that's, I would say, some of the social benefits of this is just giving uh, more examples of how uh, uh, sex and biology is weird. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then, you know, moving towards the more scientific uh, goals of this, um, we've been, uh, you know, we're fundamentally a lab that studies genomes and genes. So, if, of course, we found the gene that causes the loss of flagella in, in these fishes. And wouldn't you know that this, uh, this gene, it's a single mutation, we believe, and um, hmm. it's actually a really important gene in the formation of cilia and flagella in humans as well. So uh, there is a disorder called primary ciliary dyskinesia, PCD for short, and it affects a number of people. It's, it's, it's not a super common disease, but it's, it's common enough that um, 
the National Institutes of Health, for instance, are, are really interested in the causes uh, of this disease. There are 40 known mutations of this uh, uh, that cause this condition, which leads to infertility. Okay. Uh, malformations, uh, so birth de defects of various uh -huh. kinds, and a, a lot of respiratory problems because, of course, cilia are really important in moving the mucus yeah. inside of our lungs. Sure. And so um, it turns out that this gene, one of the genes that we discovered in, in Wormyrids that's mutated is a known cause of primary ciliary dyskinesia. In humans or even mice, these animals are really sick, right? Mm-hmm. Electric fish seem to be doing just fine without and, this And in gene. fact, they all are without it, right? They, they are. They are all without it. Or is it, it's not that they're without it, it's altered? That's right. So myrids have what we believe is it, it functions, but it functions differently. Whereas mm. the, the people that have this mutation just lack it altogether. Yeah. But they, you know, compared to humans, myrids are doing quite well with this altered or possibly missing gene. Mm-hmm. So what we think is really valuable is, okay, well, imagine that um, we could understand how myrids are getting by without this key gene that's needed to form cilia and flagella. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could we apply some of the thing, strategies that myrids are using to compensate for this in people who are suffering from primary ciliary dyskinesia? Right? So it becomes a way to gain some insight into potentially fixing a, a condition that could be uh, really problematic. Um, so, so I think that there's really um, some, some direct human interventions. And of course, it gives us a lot more information about problems with human fertility, which is obviously a, a big problem itself, but very specifically about this gene which is associated with this disease. So uh, maybe switch topic a little bit uh, sure. in that um, we are now in an age different, just in the time that you've been at the university, where there's a lot more ease of understanding the actual genetics, the DNA yeah. of all the various species we have on the planet. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's gone from, well, it might take us a half a year to, uh, you know, to get halfway through the, the gene, you know, the, the, the DNA and understanding how it's laid out to, Hey, let's get it done in a week. Or I don't know, it may not be a week, but, 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 you <laughs> know, close, you know, yeah. you know, uh, so what's the implication of that? in regards to what we can expect for discoveries or understanding or evo understanding of evolution uh, yeah. in regards to, to now that we have a lot more information. We didn't have it at all. Yep. And now we have all kinds of information. What's the implication from a science perspective? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to find the word. I think the best word I could use is democratization. Um, so you know, I'm old enough now that I've lived through various funding cycles and research priority cycles that, you know, prior or probably right around the time I was in graduate school, the funding agencies were starting to constrict around a, a set of model organisms for understanding biology. And it was really fruit flies, mice, uh, yeast, uh, uh, a couple other systems, these sorts of things. And they said, well, Rather than focus on all these weirdo animals, right, we're going to focus on these and try to learn something, which is, you know, admittedly not a terrible strategy, but it was really bad for business with, when you're an electric fish biologist. Yeah, yeah. And now the pendulum has swung completely the other way. The, the justification for that was, well, we have no genetic uh, understanding of these animals. So, it, you know, the future really is in the genome. You know, agencies were seeing that. But the um, ability to do anything, you know, to understand, for instance, this, this gene that causes the loss of flagella or any of the other genes we've been telling stories about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so now these technologies have just blown that 
assumption out of the water. Now you can sequence anything's DNA, in, in, like you said, in less than a day. So now any organism can be a model organism. And this is exactly what's happening at MSU and institutions around the world. MSU is really starting to excel in the area of aquatic organisms as being important models. But these are not our traditional models of lab rats and lab mice. Right, these are right, fish. Right. Um, and we're learning tons of really important things that are sort of changing the way that we view the evolutionary process by studying the genomes of fish. And in some cases, uh, the fish like the zebra danio, uh, the zebra fish, um, they can re they can require a whole lot more less space. Yes. So a whole lot more than than I when I was in in high school, my first main job was working right over on Schumann Road in Hazlitt, and it was a place that produced rats and mites for research. And it's just and that building was reasonable size. You know, I I'm guessing maybe. Um, 20,000 square foot or something like that. And in each room, there was just just fields of, you'd show up for work and what's your job? You had this room that was pretty darn large. And by the end of the day, you had to have everyone watered, everyone fed. And then you'd, you'd, sometimes you'd come in and you had to be on the, the, the conveyor belt where you had to dump the litter, hose it down, throw it onto the, the, the conveyor belt, and start pushing it through. Yeah. And that's what you did for eight hours. Yeah. And so that's got to be different when it comes to something like uh, uh, zebra danios, for instance. That's an easy one to understand. Sure, Most sure. people know what a zebra danio is, and it's a pretty small fish. Yep. That has to make serious implication on what capacity you have as a researcher. Yeah, I mean, you know, th there's a huge advantage to working with fishes in, in the sense that, you know, space requirements, these sorts of things. Um, you know, zebrafish in particular are, are a great model because their larvae are transparent, which makes imaging the nervous system for the first week or two of life mm -hmm. possible. You can just mm -hmm. image it right through their skin while they're doing behaviors, mm -hmm. right, which is sort of, you know, Try doing that with a mouse, right? Uh, it, it's it's just a different ball game. So you know, fish have a lot of different advantages from a genetic standpoint. You know, for every one gene that we have in our genomes, uh, fish have two. So uh, fishes have undergone a whole genome duplication event, um, and and this is probably one of the reasons why they're such a successful group of vertebrates is they've got so many spare parts laying around. Right. That they can sort of tweak and change and adapt to new environments. And, and you know, a lot of the research that we've done in my lab has shown that these extra spare parts in terms of ion channels are really what has facilitated the evolution of electric fish. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I would say that electric uh, or j just fish in general are really a great model for, for doing research generally. Well, it's, it's been an unbelievable conversation in terms of information. I said it was going to be. And, and <laughs> Well, you were right. And, Jason, I have to say your energy and your excitement are absolutely just wonderful. I can see where a lot of people would like to do research. But, unfortunately, they don't get any more of it today because <laughs> we've run out of time. But we want to thank you for coming in and having that conversation. Conversation. We've been speaking this morning with Jason Gallant from MSU. Rick, uh, great job in, in booking an interesting guest. <laughs> and Bruce, thank you for producing a great show. Uh, this is Lee Cohen wishing all of you a great weekend. Mm -hmm.